Hello and welcome in to this week's edition of the Provcast. My name is Court and I will be your host uh, riding solo this week all the way from Bishkek. As many of you know, as I wait out the uh, final stages of the adoption process for our daughter. And uh, I just want to say a big thank you to all of you who have been praying for us and and um, and checking up on us and just giving us encouragements. We we really appreciate it. Hopefully I'll have even more updates and good news for you as the weeks roll along. So this week, uh, what I want to do is tackle the topic. Uh, and this topic is something that's uh, precious to me. It has been since I, uh, Morgan and I planted Providence Community Church seven or eight years ago. Uh, and then also um, really just precious to me since I became a Christian and recognized just how important uh, this topic actually is. I want to talk a little bit this week about church unity, the unity of the local body of Christ. Um, and in particular, um, why is church unity important? Uh, particularly, I mean, in the local church, um, what does it cost also? So if church unity is so important, uh, what does it cost? Uh, what are the requirements uh, for Christians as they covenant themselves together into a body in order to to preserve unity. Um, and one of the main reasons that I feel that it's important to tackle this topic uh, this week and in particular in this season uh, is not just because overall it's always important to discuss church unity and, and try to ensure that um, all Christians are always looking to unify together around the gospel uh, because the enemy's crafty and obviously hates the church. So there's always a uh, an element of dissension that it's that's um, constantly being sown by the enemy and his works and effects. We see that throughout the New Testament, uh, but also because right now we are facing, particularly in our nation in the USA, uh, the one of the most divisive times um, that I have ever seen um, in living memory, and historically speaking, we're in maybe a more divided state nationally than we have been in maybe the past fifty years or more. Um, and, and maybe there's an argument for more than that, but uh, I think that history would say that there have been some pretty volatile times before. So we're not alone on this. We don't have our own mark on on divisive uh, seasons. But I, I will say that it's been very volatile. And, and, and particularly what makes it more volatile is, in my opinion, the rise of social media, um, the accessibility that everyone has and is afforded. Uh, with not just information that's flooded into their eyes and ears, uh, whether that be uh, good or bad information, but also the accessibility that everyone has to what really is likened unto a megaphone, you know, just a megaphone to be able to shout at the top of our lungs, uh, whether it be good or bad. Uh, technology has given us that uh, capability. And so because of that, I think that there has been a, a slow progression of polarization uh, that now is hitting fever pitch. And this polarization has created a society, uh, maybe maybe the starting line is politics, maybe it isn't, but basically that there are only two positions that anyone can hold on any given issue. And nuance is completely gone. And basically we just have begun to shout at one another from from two sides of the room. And anyone who's in the middle of the room needs to pick a side or get out of the room. And that's that's basically what it's what it feels like, or at least what it has seemed to feel like for me. Um, of course, societally, uh, each group relies on a baseline unity in order to live together in harmony. You know, like in the USA, for instance, um, you know, we, we rely on a, on a baseline of uh, 
of agreements about ideals and about we have, we have founding documents, things like this. And, and, if, and if we lose you know, sight of that, then that's when you start to see some deterioration. And, and what I've uh, recognized in, in the local church in particular is the church also has uh, some baseline unity around some baseline fundamental things. Namely, uh, these are deep theological truths that center on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And, and that th- those th- it, it's, it's who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, both for us and in and through us, that unifies the church and always has unified the church. And when we lose sight of that, then the church begins uh, to divide, much like what maybe you could see culturally happening whether it be nationally in politics or nationally uh, in any number of arenas that we see some division. And so um, when we jump into this idea of church unity, I think it's important to ask the question, why is it so important that we stick together? And I have a few thoughts that I'd love for you to consider um, as you listen to this podcast. The the first is Jesus's words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter number five, in particular, uh, after he walks through the Beatitudes, Jesus would then go on to tell his disciples that they were, quote, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I want to focus on Jesus calling us the salt of the earth, the salt of the earth. Why is that important? Well, there's a million reasons more than likely that Jesus said this because when Jesus says one thing, he, he typically is uh, opening up a, a great number of truth, uh, a great number of truths that we can continue to, to mine for years and years to come. Uh, but one of those is that salt in the ancient world was used as a preservative. And you've probably heard this a million times from maybe your youth pastor or a number of pastors or maybe even me as we walked through the Summer on the Mount. I think last year or the year before. Salt was a preservative in the ancient world that, you know, was used for uh, meat and food. And basically salt oftentimes was, um, it was a delicacy. You know, people always carried salt with them because you could use it for so many things. You can use it to heal. Uh, You can use it to um, medicinal purposes. Uh, It was also used for covenants uh, in the ancient times. And so, you know, it's a good reminder to remind ourselves that the church is meant to be a, have a preservative effect on the world that is broken. The church is a gift to the world from God because it is meant to preserve the world from deterioration and degradation, like the deepest kinds. The church has always, has always played a significant role in keeping societies from being as dark as they could possibly be. You know, that's one thing, that's one doctrine that Christians have, uh, even though they have, uh, you know, we have the doctrine of sin. We also have the doctrine of common grace, which we believe that even though we live in a broken world, even though we live in a fallen world, that we also live in a world that uh, God extends his common grace to, to humankind and th- that things are not as bad as they could potentially be. Now, having said that, I do believe that both Paul's vision of the church in the New Testament and also the vision that Jesus is giving us here in the Sermon on the Mount is that if the church were not in the world, the world would be rapidly degrading and the world would be on a fast track towards some of the worst and most horrendous things that you could ever imagine. And so Jesus says that the church is meant to be a preservative of all that God had originally created to be good. Now, that, that's a, so that's one primary reason that we should consider unity as a priority in the church. Because if the church begins to divide, then not only does the church suffer, but ultimately communities suffer. 
ultimately cities suffer, ultimately societies suffer, when the local church begins to be divided in its many different facets, uh, then there's a loss that happens there, not just for the people that are involved in that community, but for every uh, good thing that the church is about the business of doing in the name of Jesus Christ, the surrounding community is harmed by it. It's harmed by the, by the division of the local church. Number two, uh, unity has a way of bringing strength and protection to uh, each and every member of the body. So it's, it's important to remember, especially in this time, uh, like if you're on Facebook or you're you know, on social media and you find yourself getting vehemently uh, distracted or even angry at some of the things that are happening in our culture, in our world, it's maybe one of the most important things to remember is that Christians don't battle against flesh and blood. It's pretty clear in Ephesians that Paul tells us that we have a spiritual battle that's going on and that if we lose sight of that, that oftentimes we take the... Uh, we take the tack of worldly warfare as though that were the primary thing that Christians should be about the business of doing. Um, but instead, it's a, it's a spiritual battle that's going on in the world all around us. And we have to be mindful of this when we look at the, the various different things that are going on, not just politically, but socially. And so Ephesians 4, a couple chapters before that uh, admonition from Paul about uh, spiritual warfare, he would tell us that we need to unify, that we ought to stick together. He's, he's saying, you know, that we're all members of the body, or as in 1 Corinthians 12, he would say uh, that no one part of the body can say to the other part of the body, or a hand say to an eye, or an eye say to a foot, I have no need of you. In other words, we need one another, that the church should be unified because we need one another, that we aren't, uh, although we're Americans, so we like the idea of independence uh, and individualism pretty strongly. We need to be reminded of the biblical, uh, the biblical truth that uh, even though we are individuals, we also are individual members of a body together, particularly in Christ, that we need one another uh, to flourish and we need one another to grow. And so another strong reason for unity in the body of Christ is that when we have one another, we actually are freed up to be as healthy and as strong as God intended us to be. Um, Jesus often uses the analogies of sheep, you know, uh, that a number of sheep uh, together can be pr- more protected than if the sheep scatter, which, you know, he, he says that the shepherd's real uh, goal is not only to fend off the wolves, but keep the sheep together so that the stray sheep doesn't end up getting picked off by the wolf. So, so one of the roles that uh, we always tell elder, elders have in the congregation and in uh, the local church is, that they ought to be on guard to keep people together because as we are together and unified and looking to extend love one to another uh, by the power of the Spirit, we're stronger this way rather than being divided and actually opening ourselves up uh, to all of the various things and attacks that can happen from the outside. And then uh, lastly, and maybe most importantly, uh, reason for uh, unity um, is that our power and our influence, Jesus told us, would come from our unity together. In John chapter number 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he asks the Father that they would be one even as he is one with the Father. And the reason that he prays this, as you find out later in the chapter, he says, may they be one, perfectly one, so that all would know that you have sent me by the love that they have one for another. In other words, Jesus said that our most powerful witness as the church 
would not be that we were theological studs. It wouldn't be that we had all of the right programs. It wouldn't be that we, you know, nailed it in our coronavirus response or we have the best, you know, website or the best, um, you know, online gathering. Uh, the most effective evangelistic tool that the church has is their love for each other that is at least public enough for our watching world to see. Now, of course, we have to imagine that the opposite of that is true as well, is it not? And uh, I was just reading an article out of The Atlantic from April uh, from uh, uh, an author named Jonathan Merritt, which I'm, I'm not, uh, just, just to be completely frank and candid, I'm not ex- extremely, uh, I'm not a fan of his. Uh, in fact, and I disagree with basically the whole premise of the article, <laughs> but he was mentioning this idea that uh, there's been studies that have uh, been done over the years, and, and even uh, the Barna Group has continued these studies as to how uh, particularly young people view the church. And in particular, there's a mass exodus of uh, young Christians out of the church at the age of 18 to 24, and the primary reason for that was that they did not see Christians love one another as Christ had called them to love one another. So hypocrisy was a major thing. Now, of course, we have to be thoughtful of this. We have to be mindful and think, okay, like I remember at 18, you know, I, I prob- probably in a lot of a lot of rebellion would have said similar things. It's, a, it's an easy, uh, low-hanging fruit. But I think there's also something to be learned from that. And that primarily is just as Jesus said that our unity would be uh, a primary way that we can reach the world and show them that Jesus really is who he says he is. Uh, Our lack of love and disunity in the church can be one of the greatest detractors for people who are looking for an alternative to the madness of the world they see around them. And at Providence, we've always said we want for uh, Providence to be so passionate about their love for God and love for one another that they are a, a beautiful alternative to the madness of the world. And so what we're ultimately aiming for here then is a supernatural, Holy Spirit-wrought unity that only comes when we rally around main things like the gospel. The truth of the gospel is what allows us to have such an unbelievably diverse group of people. It's the very theological basis for this kind of group. Uh, because no other group can be as diverse as the church can be because of how glorious the truth is that they're rallying around. It's why in Revelation you see that every tribe, nation, tongue is represented around the throne of God, and yet they seem to be able to coexist together in this dwelling place. It's interesting that that, that uh, John describes that at this the dwelling place of God is with man again, meaning that we will live together in a new kingdom society. And that we will do so in peace, despite all of the diversity that's represented in the kingdom. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to live out as the local church. Uh, Paul, and I wanted to read this text for you um, uh, as we talk about church unity. This is Paul, and he's he's writing to the Philippians. Um, this is one of uh, Paul's prison epistles. So he's, he's writing to the, to the church in Philippi as he's in a Roman jail. Uh, and he, he's particularly going to implore them around the idea of church unity and unifying together uh, as a local body. And here's what he says, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to also the interests of others. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, and by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of, at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul here says, um, I, I long for you to be in unity. I long, to, I long for you to be, have the same mind. Uh, he said this would complete his joy, having the same mind, the same love, being of full accord. Um, but he also is not um, naive about what this kind of unity would cost. I appreciate that Paul is honest and he's not trying to pander. He's he's telling them that this kind of unity is going to require of them sacrifice. We get that in uh, some of the words that he uses. You know, first he tells them, you know, if you have any encouragement or comfort or participation or affection or sympathy, you know, all of these words are, are positive words, you know, to be an encourager, to be a comforter. Uh, to be in participation with one another, to have affection and sympathy. These are positive words, and therefore we usually don't, uh, we don't equate them to sacrifice. And yet, uh, if you've tried to relationally, whether it's interacting with your spouse or whether it's interacting with friends or whether it's interacting at the church, if you've tried to actually do these things, you know that these things are not easy to actually follow through with. To be a genuine encourager or a genuine comforter, uh, to... Look to God to give you a brotherly affection for people uh, on a regular basis, not just kind of a one-off, but on a regular basis to, to be sympathetic when you're going through things as well. You know, these are not easy things. Um, th- then Paul also, he, he's going to go on, he, not, not necessarily go on the negative, but these are negative terms. He's going to go on the negative here and say, um, and you have to reject some things to be unified. You have to reject selfish ambition, conceit, and self-interest. You know, this is... Obviously, one of the the most difficult um, hurdles for people to jump whenever they uh, join a Christian community or covenant together in Christian community is because I think that uh, Christians generally who are filled with the Spirit of God desire to see the vision for the local church that I mentioned at the outset of this podcast. I think they desire to be that that preserving force that finds strength in Christ together, protecting one another, a powerful influence in a community for good and for the glory of God, uh, you know, changing the world for um, the purposes of King Jesus. I think everybody sees that and says, wow, I want to be a part of that. I want my kids to be a part of that. And then rubber meets the road and uh, and, and real life hits and, and there's this one big problem. And that is that the church is made up of people. <laughs> and, and people are messy. You know, there's this proverb uh, that Solomon gives us in the book of Proverbs that says, uh, where there are no oxen, there are clean stalls. And then he goes on to say, but it's the oxen that treads out the grain. 
there's a lot of, there's so much wisdom in that small little nugget. What is he saying there? Uh, Solomon is saying, listen, if you want a clean and neat barn, that's entirely easy to do. All you have to do is keep it clear of any animals, any oxen. You don't have, just don't put any oxen in there. But then he'll go on to say, but the problem is you built the barn for the sake of treading out the grain and having harvest. And the only thing that treads out the grain is the harvest, or, or the oxen. And the only way you get the harvest is by the oxen treading out the grain. <laughs> so the same idea, because you know, Solomon's giving us so much wisdom here in, in leadership, and, uh, and particularly in a vision of the local church, is the local church doesn't fulfill the mandate given to them by God to be salt and light in the earth, to be this preservative influence and this pillar and buttress of truth, unless the church exists with spirit-filled Christ followers who are unified around the truth of the gospel. It's impossible. So the, the vision of the church doesn't come about without people because people, the, the ecclesia, the gathering of people is the church. People are the church. But on the flip side, with those people comes messiness. People make the stalls dirty. Or to put it another way, um, people have selfish ambition. People struggle with conceit. People can even be self-interested. And yes, I even mean spirit-filled disciples. I <laughs> uh, hope that's not a shocker to you if you're listening to this. Christian people sin. Uh, Christian people can battle conceit, pride, gossip, ma- uh, slander. If you don't believe me, read through Paul's letters. He very rarely ever gets through an entire epistle without mentioning the words that I just used. Um, that these things are regular. And, and and maybe the most important is that because people are, uh, even Christians, disciples, are still struggling with the power of sin in their lives, they also can have vehement disagreements. And disagreements, if not done with humility... And under the banner of what unites us, namely the gospel, can lead to some pretty hefty divisions. Pretty hefty divisions. And there's a lot of different kinds of divisions. And, you know, I, I think I'm going to get to that by the end of the podcast, the kinds of division that we might experience. But I just want to point out here that Paul is being very brutally transparent with us to say, listen, if we're going to have this kind of unity to be of the same mind, uh, to have the same spirit about us, it's going to cost. And then, of course, he goes on to say that we have to, we have to humbly count others as more significant than ourselves. And I think that's, that's a way of Paul wrapping up what it costs to truly have church unity, namely that we would be other-oriented in our, um, in our thoughts, we would be other-oriented other in our speech, and we would be other-oriented in our actions. That would count others as uh, more significant than even ourselves. And, and look to their interests and not just our own interests. Paul, Paul is going to tell us, okay, I want to give you an example. Like, so who am I telling you to be like? And, you know, spoiler alert, you probably already know, right? He, he says, who do we need to be? We need to be like Jesus. <laughs> be like Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. Who did what? Well, he gives you kind of like this, this plot graph of how, how Jesus modeled uh, humility for us. He modeled this kind of self-denial, which, which the church, if we were to model, we could have that kind of unity. So what does he say? He emptied himself. So if we model this, we, we empty ourselves. Uh, 
take the form of a servant. So we take the form of a servant to one another and don't try to take the form of lords over one another. This is uh, directly from Jesus' words about leadership, right? That we don't lord over one another, but we serve one another. That's the kind of leadership that Christ would have us exhibit. And then he talks about the incarnation. You know, he says that he took the form of a servant um, and that even though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he was born in the likeness of men. So he, you know, Jesus embraced humanity. And I think we could take a note from that. You know, Jesus embraced humanity as the divine. We are not divine, and yet we still struggle to uh, embrace our own humanity. You know, I, I often joke in sermons that the only um, human being ever that didn't have a Messiah complex was the true, the only Messiah that had a right not to. You know, sometimes we we ignore our own humanity and our opinions about things uh, become uh, even more prevalent and prominent than God himself. We feel like our opinions are better than everybody else's because we have this divine spark in us that just gets it all right. Uh, you can even see this on Facebook. Or, you know, we're, we're talking about things that are pretty nuanced. And, and there's a lot of nuanced things in the world that aren't just black and white. And yet, once again, in our polarized society, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, pressure to make everything black and white. And then Paul goes on, you know, he, he became obedient to death, even death, uh, death on a cross. So this, this idea of uh, being obedient to the Father, even when it stings, you know, being obedient to God's word, even when you feel like you're losing yourself, even when you feel like, you know what, I, I, I'm always the one sacrificing, you know, I'm always the one who's having to lay down. I'm always the one who's having to say, I'm sorry. I'm always the one who's having to go first and reconcile, you know, sounds a lot like a marriage, right? You always, every, every spouse in the marriage, whether it's husband or wife, always feels like they're the one that's apologizing too much. And you know, here we see that Paul tells us to take the model of Jesus, which is that Jesus took on all the wrongs of humanity, even though he was not wrong. <laughs> uh, that he took responsibility and was obedient to the Father, even all the way to death on a cross, a humiliating death. And then, of course, it ends with this great exaltation. You know, this great idea that then God highly exalted Jesus and gave him a name that's above every name. And, you know, lest we miss the whole point here, it's not that, um, you know, we're... We're doing all these things to, to be exalted, but nonetheless, God actually gives us these crazy promises in the New Testament that he actually will uh, exalt us to the to the right hand of Christ, that we actually get to be seated with him in heavenly places. You know, this promise that it's not always going to be um, this self-denial, it's not always going to be this way, but instead, Jesus is showing us a way that ends in, in great glory, even whenever we don't get the glory on this side of things, that sometimes in order to preserve church unity, we have to actually shy away from uh, getting the glory or winning the argument. Uh, so big ideas, you know, church unity costs, but it's worth the cost. And just as a side note, you know, I was as I was thinking about this and really praying through talking about it, I thought, you know, isn't Jesus and his disciples one of the great examples of unity and great diversity? Um, you know, because sometimes I think the idea of unity is um, if we could just get a lot of people around us who uh, think like we do and act like we do and talk like we do and then then it'd be easy to have unity. Well, first of all, I would I would venture to say that, you know, it doesn't even work out then because, you know, sinful people find ways to have disagreements. But nonetheless, you know, the church is not meant to be an echo chamber or a monolith. The church is this uh, is, a, is a group of people who come from a ton of different backgrounds and uh, are very different. You know, we see this all the way from Acts chapter 2. The, Jesus particularly chose to start his church in Acts chapter 2 when all these nations came into Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the feast, and they were from all over. And uh, that's the first time we see Peter standing up at Pentecost and preaching, and lots of people come, uh, thousands come to know Christ and believe, and then you have your first church. So, uh, 
But, but, I, but as I was thinking about this, I was thinking Jesus' disciples, the earliest disciples, the 12 disciples, give us the best model for what this looks like. Jesus did not choose a group of guys that were all the same. You know, he, he's got, you know, Peter, James, and John that most likely are fishermen. He's got Matthew, who's a tax collector. Those couldn't be, you know, too uh, further, further different from one another. And then you have a guy named Simon the Zealot, who most likely is this insurrectionist that's just ready to basically overthrow the government. You know, all these people together. You got one guy who's working for the government, the tax collector. You got another guy who wants to overthrow the government, and they're eating you know, at a table together with Jesus. You know, and this gives us this idea that uh, it, it's a worthy enterprise, for the church to find unity with people who are uh, different and maybe see the world differently. Uh, and, and it's a worthy enterprise because it shows the glory of Christ that we have more in common. Just by having Christ in common, we have more in common than we have uh, different about us. Um, so just quickly, I wanted to mention, you know, what are, what are the potential divides? And I wanted to close with this thought so that you can have some practical application. You know, what are some potential dividers um, that we as a church might face? Um, I have three. One is, you know, theological dividers. Uh, two is political dividers or division. And three is relational dividers or division. Theological division, political division, or relational division. You know, obviously theological division would be, uh, you know, in the local church, usually we have like, it's easy because you have like your statement of faith, you know, and you're like, okay, we're going to rally around this. And then that's what we're going to agree on. But it's never, it's never that easy because uh, the truth is every statement of faith has, uh, has not fully encapsulated all of the different things that you could disagree about theologically. And so by its very nature, you're, you're going to find things uh, that theologically people might disagree on. And at Providence, we've always chosen that uh, we are going to you know, major on the majors, and majoring on the majors has everything to do with uh, majoring on that which corresponds to and centers around the personal work of Jesus and the gospel. Now, I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, argument about that, you know, because you're like, okay, because you're centering on the personal work of Jesus, let's talk about, and you could fill in the blank with any theological nuance, but um, I would just venture to challenge that, you know, it's, it's really important to ask ourselves when we start getting in the weeds, um, are we exhibiting uh, pride, maybe even idolatry over our own opinions about things? Or are we exhibiting charity and care toward one another? Um, are we building one another up, as Paul says and encourages us to do? Or are we uh, succumbing to, particularly with theology, knowledge that puffs up? You know, these are good important qualifiers that we should ask ourselves as we consider uh, some of these uh, disagreements. Uh, and, and in the upcoming episodes, I hope to talk a little bit about like why I think that uh, majoring on the majors or focusing on what's essential is really important for the church, particularly in this time. And, and spoiler alert, it is because we are living in a time and in an age where the question is not whether or not uh, there's particular uh, disagreements about nuances of uh, the Bible, but whether or not truth is even um, objective and whether or not we can even, um, we can ever come to a knowledge of any truth. That's the argument culturally. So, so us, you know, in a culture where we're looking to share the gospel and push back darkness, we need to understand like the battles that we're fighting and ensure that we don't get too distracted by the battles that are uh, tertiary. Uh, political division is pretty is pretty simple. You know, you can see it everywhere. It's going to only ramp up until November. And so I just, I, I would encourage you and, and challenge you 
uh, to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. Uh, and this is not an admonition from me pastorally to uh, negate your civil, your civic responsibility of voting or exercising that right, uh, but more so to remember your allegiance to the kingdom of God as a pri- as a primary and as a priority. Uh, and I think that as we, if we ask ourselves and we really put it on the scales, the amount of time and energy and effort that we are putting into uh, the growth and flourishing. Uh, spiritually that we are after with the kingdom versus the uh, political discourse that we're involved in, that that could be a good litmus test for us on if we are actually too engaged or maybe overly engaged or maybe just not rightly prioritizing that which is important. And then lastly, relational division. And relational division really can come from these from these other two. And this is where if you find yourself on the disagreeing path with um, others on these other two issues, or a myriad of other issues. It could be very easy at this time to just write people off. And I say that because I know listening to me right now, there's probably a lot of members at Providence, and maybe if you're listening in from another church, you know, welcome into kind of a family talk. But, you know, other other churches that, you know, you're not even attending necessarily services because A, it's kind of, it's kind of scary and you're not really sure about the safety uh, of your children and family, or B, you know, like Providence, for instance, we haven't been able to safely open up our childcare yet, so it's easier to just kind of have the kids at home. Uh, or C, there's another reason that I'm not even sure about. Uh convenience, maybe, whatever it may be. I, I just, it's an easy time to be convinced by the enemy or maybe even your own sinful heart that why not just write these people off and just do something else? Whether I do something else with my Sundays, which would be really tragic, or I just try to, you know, kind of unplug and find a newer, cooler group of people. <laughs> and the sad, the sad fact of this is the newer, newer, cooler group of people don't exist because they're just like you and just like me. So how do we combat this? Well, number one, I think we come to a common agreement on essentials. Come to a common agreement on what matters most both in life and uh, theologically. And when we come to that common agreement together, we can latch on to the person and work of Christ. And then we find ourselves a lot closer than we are further apart. Um, And number two, we leave room for charitable disagreement with one another on tertiary things. So listen, uh, there's a place for dialogue, and I love talking, and I love discussing, and even people I disagree with, I learn from them, so I like discussing it with them more. The key word there is charitable. So there's always room for this kind of charitable dialogue and charitable discussion on tertiary things or things that we're all really not sure about. You know, if you wanna, if you wanna, uh, you know, battle it out about whether or not the UFOs are real from the Pentagon's perspective, it seems like maybe they are. Then more power to you. My admonition would simply be maybe uh, Facebook is just not the best medium for these kind of. Uh, arguments, let's say. They can be a great, it can be a great medium for, you know, helpful encouragement discussion. I say once it begins to be robust dialogue, it probably should be move on from there and off of that medium. And then lastly, how do we uh, avoid this kind of divisions? Well, we act in love and humility um, in every single circumstance. And I just want to add as a caveat, not just to one another, but even to those who are outside the church that we vehemently disagree with. We act in love and humility in everything toward one another and to those who are outside the church, outside the faith, even when we vehemently disagree with where they may stand. And listen, that is not because you're trying to preserve unity with everybody that's outside the church, because that's not necessarily true. 
but there is a reason that uh, Paul actually lays out in the New Testament that one of the qualifications for, for leadership in the church would be that they were well thought of by outsiders. That's interesting. Why? Why well thought of by outsiders? I don't think he means that you're always going to have the tacit approval of some of your theological positions by uh, people outside the church. I think this is so much more about the way in which you engage and live your life. Are you are you cordial? Are you kind? Are you humble? Are you loving? Are you caring? Are you thoughtful? Are you, uh, the book of James says, you know, slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to hear others. You know, these are all the uh, virtuous uh fruit of the Spirit that we ought to be pursuing, and not just with one another, but especially to a watching world right now, because I just think if the church could display these characteristics in spades, it would stand as such a contrast to the rest of the world uh, right now, which is, you know, basically just giving into every vice possible and has lost all all uh, bearing or grounding in any sort of care or kind virtue in dialogue, particularly around uh, the discussions that are pretty divisive and and, and widely disagreed upon. So that's my encouragement. Um, you know, come to we come to common agreement on the essential things. We we have charity and have charitable disagreement on the tertiary things, and then we act in love and humility in everything. Um, and we follow the example. Of King Jesus. Um, and we follow his example of self-denial. We follow his example of sacrifice. And we follow his example of uh, obedience to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. You know, we, we, we follow obedience to the Lord, even when it stings. Uh, Providence, I, this is uh, something I'm passionate about, something that's dear to my heart, because I care about uh, the local church. I care about us. I care about us being uh, united together in love for Christ and love for each other. Um, and also in this time, you know, especially me, I'm, you know, 7,000 miles away. There's nothing more precious to me than the thought of the people of God uh, bearing through, suffering well, and finding themselves on the opposite side of this pandemic closer, more in love with God, and more passionate about loving one another with the brotherly affection that was purchased by Jesus' blood for us. Um, that is what my desire is. It's what our, my desire is for us. And I think it's what Christ's desire is for the church in an age where division runs rife. So I hope you enjoyed this broadcast. If you're listening in and you're not a member of Providence and just want to say, you know, we're so glad that you listened in too. You can find more information about Providence Community Church uh, at providencetx.org. Uh, and you can also follow this pro- this podcast on iTunes and subscribe. Uh, we would love it if you would. Uh, until next time, I just want to say uh, go now and share the love of God that's been shown to you. Love God and love people. Uh, and we hope that you have a great week. So-